HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Greetings, friends. You're listening to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. This is our first episode for summer 2015. I'm Laura Stanley. Uh, With Child Nutrition Reauthorization, or CNR, 2015 on the calendar for late September, we are going to have a lot of news to follow this summer from D.C. and beyond. So we are planning some episodes for you that will be on the dense side to keep you current with important conversations about the future of federal child nutrition programs. But rest easy, we're not going to be heading thick into policy and politics today. Uh, Today, I'm going to introduce you to a very wise and experienced lady who's been squarely planted in the trenches in school kitchens for 25 years, dealing with the everyday procedures involved in getting kids fed right. Um, Cindy Story began her career um, as an administrator in school food service in Cobb County, Georgia. She's since moved on to consult with school districts in 37 states, where she spreads a kind of gospel of work simplification to mostly rank-and-file kitchen workers. And, And the humility and humor with which she approaches the job makes her a truly inspirational figure. Um, I met Cindy for the first time just last month at the Culinary Institute of America's Healthy Flavors, Healthy Kids Summit um, on their campus in San Antonio. Um, Cindy delighted conference attendees with her her comic approach to common sense solutions. And I thought, you know, I've just got to share her with our audience on Inside School Food. And Cindy, I'm so happy you said yes. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. So I noticed on your website that you call yourself a culinarian, um, and I'm embarrassed to say that was a new word for me, but I looked it up and I really like that word. <laughs> and, and in your case, the credentials behind it include a PhD from Iowa State University's Child Nutrition Leadership Academy. You're also a registered dietitian and a culinary school graduate, graduate, and, and really an early adopter of formal culinary training for school food service uh, because you got 
got that uh, culinary training back in the late 90s. Um, so I, I, you do so many things. So I'd like to start out by giving folks a sense of what kind of a consultant you are, because, of course, there are so many different kinds of consultants in the world of school food. I mean, who are your clients and what do they ask you to do for them? Sure. Um love to share this with you. So I would say uh, 80% of the time I am very fortunate to get to be a teacher um, at the site level. So that means working, you know, side by side with the frontline staff. And uh, I tell people that's where the magic happens. You know, mm-hmm. that's where uh, the, the true heroes of school nutrition lie. Um, so this work um, could be uh, hands-on culinary training where we take 25, 30 school nutrition professionals we work together in the kitchen on recipes. I mean, they actually prepare the product. We um, put it on the serving line. How are we going to merchandise this? What portioning tool are we going to serve this to the students? I mean, you know, the real details of food service occur with hands-on food production classes. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, I may be in an auditorium doing a culinary demonstration on knife skills, um, you know, simple simple things as dicing an onion or how to peel a kiwi with a spoon, uh, those little tricks of the trade um, in a a demonstration. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so, and and you, sometimes you're there for weeks and sometimes you're there for days. I mean, and and once you, once you're gone, like what are, what are the deliverables that uh, a district expects from you? Sure. Um, So in the culinary training piece, you know, they are looking for culinary, basic culinary skills training. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, though, I'm invited into a district as a, a true consult, consultation. And so when I'm in that, that situation, you know, I'm there to observe the kitchens, the practices, um, and then I sort of leave the district with a, a to-do list of, um, you know, my recommendations, but it also includes commendations, you know, all the good things that they are doing. Right, right. Build up that confidence. And I understand you're also, um, you also teach in USDA's uh, Produce University? Yes. So I've been um, really fortunate and privileged to be a part of USDA's Produce Safety University. Mm -hmm. Um, We won the Secretary Award uh, years back for that course. And like I said, it's a week-long, I mean, it's an intense week-long immersion course uh, taking participants all the way from the farm, you know, to our school kitchens in, in service of, um, of produce and how to handle it safely. Right. And then you told me you're you're one of the, you know, team of people that works with the National Food Service Management Institute on developing curriculum for school food. So you're, so you're one of those, those magicians behind the scenes putting all that together. Yes, yes. So I'm also, you know, a you know, writer of... Um, Curriculum, uh, you know, uh, teaching materials, video scripts. I've done a number of um, video productions. Right. So basically, what I wanted to establish here is you do a whole bunch of stuff, right? But the part of all this I, I'm really interested in focusing on today is the part that I know that you love the best, and that, as you said, is working with staff people in school kitchens. Um, in San Antonio, you said something that really intrigued me. It was um, you said when people say I'm in school nutrition for kids, that gives me pause because I'm in it for the staff. What did you mean by that? Right. So, you know, I know that, um, I mean, in a way I'm there for the kids, but actually I am there to support the staff so that they are in it for the kids. You know, I think that 
um, many leaders have figured out that when you sell that product to your employees, you know, uh, I get excited when the employee is dining on the meal. I get a little concerned when I see separate preparation of meals uh, for staff mm-hmm. they, for whatever reason they're not wanting to eat, consume the school lunch, uh, that meal. It's sort of a little red flag, you know, how do we get our lunch sold to the cafeteria staff right. so that they can be the sales force to, to reach the child. They have to be excited enough about it to want to eat it themselves. I've never heard that before, but of course that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then there was another thing you said in San Antonio. You said, I love to laugh, and once we laugh, the learning begins. Um, and and you, you had, in San Antonio, you had us cracking up a lot. So what, <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you mean by that? You know, that was for me, too. Y'all were laughing, but I was laughing, too. It, mm-hmm. gives me, it does. It gives me great pleasure to, uh, to laugh. I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm one of those that when I get up out of the uh, bed every morning, I'm just I'm happy, uh, and I'm, I'm I don't know. I think it probably is genetic, but I'm very fortunate uh, in that. And, you know, coming from a very funny family, mm-hmm. I, just, I love that laughter. And, you know, in teaching, when your participants, you know, they start to laugh and see, you know, realize there's humor in this, then they will relax, you know. And, uh, you know, I think I've said the walls fall down, the endorphins flow, and then suddenly there's this really fun learning that takes place. Right. Not not everyone can do that, um, but I guess it's something it can, you, you can learn. But for you, it seems to, you know, happen really naturally. Um, yeah, for me, it's natural. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so let's say you enter a school kitchen that needs help. Um, you're surrounded by a staff, you know, the staff, the strangers, you know, and establishing your relationship with them. What's the first thing you do? If I'm in a kitchen and I'm there to... Uh, if I'm doing a site visit for the, the administrative staff, then I want to be in there for several days. And the first day, I really want to take it all in. I mean, I don't want to change anything. I don't want to give any advice. I want to see how they are doing it. Because many, many times, they are doing it exactly as I would. And that's what I want to convey. Because once I'm standing side by side with that person, and I say, oh, so how would you do, you know, X? And they say, you know, I would do it this way. Mm -hmm. I would do it just like that. And there I stand in a chef's uniform, and suddenly I I can just see the response. They kind of go, oh, I'm doing it like the chef. I must be, you know, trained, you know, just like I must be okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's an important exercise in winning trust for starters. Um, is just it's supporting what they do, and also just sort of standing back and being quiet and watching. Um, that so that's important. Um, and uh, you know, did did you have to learn how to do this, or did you kind of have this respectful, quiet approach down from you know the beginning from the get go? I don't know. I think it's how I like to learn. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, it just, it, you said there was something. You said when you were a kid, there was something your dad told you about, like learning all the pieces of what's going on in an operation. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. <yes>. So, <laughs> when I was a, a very young child, my father, uh, you know, he was a self-employed man, and he would always say to me, you know, you, in order to do well in whatever profession you're going to take on, you need to know how to do every single job in the organization. Mm-hmm. And so, as I started supervising kitchens, you know, he would say. Do you know how to work the oven? Yes, sir. You know, do you know how to work the dishwasher? Yes, sir. Can you take those fryers apart, break them down, clean them, and, and refill? Yes, sir. I can do all of that. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, and so and so you 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 took that attitude from the get go when when you were um, even before you went through culinary school. Oh, I, I learned that probably at um, twelve. Well, I you know I started working for my father when I was maybe around ten, mm-hmm. uh, pumping gas. Okay, okay, <laughs> and cleaning windshields. I've I've, I've uh, worked my whole life, but yeah. I enjoy work. Right, uh, and so yeah, so I I learned it a long long time ago. Yeah, yeah. be able to do all the all the tasks. Yeah, you love to work. You you told me by day three in a kitchen, that's when you want to start rolling up your sleeve, putting on your hairnet and your apron and getting spaghetti sauce stains all over <laughs> your chef coat. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I mean, because then there's, you know, it's not just a matter of, oh, here's this person, they're visiting. Yeah, right. What do they know? Mm-hmm. I mean, when they see that you can work side by side and simplify their, their work, mm-hmm they get they start they open up i mean they're like so what do you think about this what do you think about that and then we can work together as a team and it also bonds the administrative staff to that school as well because there may or may not be a good relationship yeah so let, let's talk about that because uh, when i asked you earlier about you know what are some of the things you can do to help build self-esteem and kitchen staff which is sometimes lacking you talked about the importance of you know when you're there as a consultant bringing their bosses into the kitchen to observe what's really going on, which surprisingly is not something that's happened before. Yeah, you know, it's really, I used to be them, and it's really hard sometimes to balance the office work with, you know, getting out there into the schools where you know you need to be, but then there's all these other things going on. So I, I do understand that. But it's just invaluable as an administrator if you can spend time in a kitchen, and I tell people, Stay long enough for them to forget that you are there. Mm-hmm. Because once you get there as an administrator, they're all on heightened alert to do certain things, um, you know, for the first 15 or 20 minutes. But then they will forget. And then you will actually see how they're going to produce something or what piece of equipment they're going to use. And it's just invaluable what you can learn just by observing. Right. And, and, and you also told me that um, food service workers are often – um, feel as though they're not empowered to ask for equipment purchases. and But yet when administrators come in and see how certain equipment purchases can make a huge difference, then they can get it. And, and in particular, there was that immersion blender story you told in San Antonio. Can you can you tell us that story? <laughs> yeah, so you're talking about the one with the salad dressing? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you'll, I'll be with the director and we'll be in a kitchen and – you know, a lot of times, I, you know, I, I travel with a culinary case, so I have a lot of this with me when I travel. And we'll bring something out. And so we were making salad dressing, and I was using my immersion blender, and I said to the director, you should think about purchasing immersion blenders if you're going to make your own salad dressings. And the director, she looked straight at me, and she goes, well, uh, we make our own salad dressings. And I turned immediately to the staff person and said, so how are you mixing this up? And they were doing it by hand with a whisk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in that quick moment, the director said, oh, well, we can, we can get this piece of equipment. Absolutely. Yeah, because I teased, the, I staff, the staff member was talking about, like, I'll say, yeah. if you have a lot, if you go into a school and you see a lot of pampered chef pieces, uh-huh. you know you probably need to buy a few things. I, what's a, I, what is a pampered chef piece? A pampered chef is a... 
Uh, it, you have these little paper shift parties, uh-huh. and so you buy these little small gadgets. Oh. And they're not uh, NSF, National Sanitation Foundation, approved for commercial kitchens, but yeah. it's a sign that your staff is looking for tools to make their life easier. So, and, and there are commercial uh, tools that will replace those pampered chef items. Right, which, which can avoid certain repetitive stress injuries, as, as was, was the case in the salad dressing story you were telling me about. Correct. So, yeah, Correct. yeah, yeah. So, Cindy, you, you told me that s- school cooks are the most resourceful cooks ever. Um, wh- what did you mean by that? Well, you, you mentioned earlier how they, I, I had mentioned that they don't, ask for things. So they are going to figure out in the most ingenious way, you know, how to solve their immediate problem. I mean, they don't have that piece of equipment. For whatever reason, they are not asking for it. And so how can we solve the problem with what we have? Mm -hmm. And so um, some of the things that I've seen, some of my favorites, flags on the garbage can. So if there's one garbage can, they will attach a flag, like a... um, like you would see on the back of a cart or something. Right. And and so that way, whoever's on this side of the kitchen, they'll be able to see where the garbage can is located. So they walk to it. Well, <laughs> Instead of having a second or third garbage can. But still, it's a, it's a great <laughs> exactly, idea. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm thinking, y'all are brilliant. And at the same time, you know, I'm thinking, okay, let's get a few garbage cans. <laughs> can- Duh. <laughs> it seems so simple. But, you know, sometimes we don't see our own... Uh, it happens to me, too. I don't see my own dirt. Right, right. Um, some other favorites, uh, shredding cheese on the back of perforated pans. Wow. Yeah, just you need a grater. Not we'll asking for a cheese. grater. Yeah. And didn't yeah. you say in one district that they, they'd actually had the high school shop class, like, perforate uh, some sort of a uh, pan so that they could have this thing to grate yes. with? Oh, yes. my gosh. I mean, isn't that brilliant? So the, the yeah, manager totally. had the machine shop class take full-size solid sheet pans mm-hmm. and cut tiny little, you know, drill tiny little holes in them so that she could get a perforated sheet pan, which is ideal for, you know, making things crispy, you know, on all sides as you bake them. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when I was inspecting the pan, it, it, it kept producing these little metal shreds. It was never... Yeah. <laughs> it was not um, not ideal, but it was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it was another instance of they didn't feel they could ask for it, so they 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 found a workaround. Um, yes, yes. So that that is pretty enterprising. Um, so, Cindy, we're we're going to take a quick station break now. Um, this is Inside School Food. Today's episode is Tales from the Trenches with Chef Cindy Story. Cindy has been championing um, and cheerleading for school cooks all over the nation for more than 20 years. Cindy, when we come back, I'm going to ask you about the one thing school food service staff stay to you the most, as in, you know, all the time. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Just for me, girl. Please don't give none away. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. 
won't you save all your cherry jam? Or won't you save all your cherry jam? I want you to save all your cherry jam. Welcome back to Inside School Food. We're visiting with chef consultant Cindy Story, who's rolled up her sleeves to train and lend a hand in school kitchens in 37 states so far, with a goal of making it to all 50 before she retires. Um, so, Cindy, we just finished talking about how incredibly resourceful school cooks can be. And yet, when you settle into working with them in their kitchens, what's the thing you hear them uh, say the most to you? Uh, I would just say that they look at me and say, I can't believe I didn't think of that. <laughs> and, what are the, and what are some of the things they can't believe they didn't think of? <laughs> it's the same experience I had in culinary school watching the chefs. I, I know exactly how they feel. Um, so things like um, working your prep table. I was in a school and they were preparing Parmesan chicken, probably, you know, four or five hundred servings. And instead of putting the toppings in a four-inch half-size pan and working the table, they had the serving uh, portioning spoodle, and they were walking up to the sauce and then walking down to the pan, back and forth, back and forth. And I simply went, you know, washed, gloved up, put the product in the pans, and started moving down the work, the prep table. And they looked at me, and they, again, Oh, my gosh, I feel so silly. I can't believe I didn't think of that. <laughs> What's <laughs> uh, another one? I think a cantaloupe is another big one. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I grew up just like many people, and we would cut the cantaloupe in half, you know, scoop out the seeds, then we would cut it into wedges, and then we would cut the wedges away from the rind and, you know, serve it sliced or diced. Well, when I show them how an easier way to do it is remove the top, remove the bottom, stand the melon up on your cutting board, and then cull the peelings away, and then you cut it in half and scrape out the seeds, and so the the peeling is gone, and that's another big, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't think of that. That is so much easier than the way I've been doing it. Cindy, I can't believe I didn't think of that. I don't do it that way either. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yes, and you know... Back you know, 15 years ago, we didn't have all this information on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But of course, now you can, you know, Google and take a look at these videos. But then, who has time to to do all of that? Right. So these hands-on skills classes are invaluable. Right. Right. Got any more for us? I love these. Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, peeling the kiwi. Now, I have to tell you that you don't have to peel a kiwi in order to serve it. You know, there's nothing wrong with the skin or even consuming the skin certainly would add more fiber but sometimes we need to peel the kiwi and so you you remove the top and the bottom and you're going to take a flat teaspoon and you slide that between the skin and the flesh and you i know it's it's all verbal but you keep your thumb on the back of the spoon Mm -hmm. and you're spinning it around and as soon as the spoon comes all the way around you give it a little squeeze and then out comes the peeled kiwi and it's wow. a really easy way to do that did you have a um, video of the kiwi peeling thing on your website you know at one time i had it on my website and i think now it's all i've moved it all over to youtube all right so, well yeah, I'll, I'll put it on the page for today's show because that's that's a fun trick and I th- i'd like people to see it so yeah got another one uh let's see I would say any type of fruit and vegetable fabrication, you know, dicing an onion. People don't realize that the the root end of the onion actually is holding all of the onion layers 
together. And mm-hmm. so if you remove the top and bottom of the onion, well, you have removed the root end that you, that's your handle. So you just really want to barely cut that, that part away. And then when you cut it in half, now you can easily dice. Right. That's like the first thing you learn when you start culinary school. But if these folks haven't had the advantage of going to culinary school, how are they going to know that? So, you know, it is really important. Point taken. Exactly right. In the moment, I mean, the entire time I'm in the in culinary school, I went at night uh, for two years because I was supervising my high schools during the day. And every night I would just had all these wonderful aha moments, and I could not wait to get back to school, you know, to, to show everyone, look at this, you know. I mean, I, I had the same experience that they're, you know, that I'm passing forward to them. Right. So in San Antonio, um, one of the lectures you gave, you, you came out with a um, half hotel pan full of hard-boiled eggs, and you, you took one egg out of the pan and started cracking it on the counter, and everybody just broke up. Uh, because they knew exactly what you meant, and that, <laughs> the, meaning you, you can't do the eggs one at a time if you're preparing a salad bar for 500 children. So then, <laughs> then you took the hotel pan and you just started to shake it, and of course all the the eggs broke up. So again, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Right. Well, you, when, you know, when you cook at home, you do it a certain way, but when you start cooking for thousands, you know. You have to have the mind of an institutional chef. You know, mm-hmm. what type of chef are you? Well, I'm a I'm a K twelve chef. I'm an institutional chef because we we don't do things to the plate. Right, right. So these are all really simple, low cost solutions. Um, and and speaking of low cost, I, I was really surprised by how much of the equipment you were recommending at the CIA summit were small, inexpensive things. You know, we we tend to talk a lot about big showy equipment investments on this show. Um, and, and that's kind of what I was expecting to hear about in your presentation. And instead, I sat through this slideshow of a lot of little things, you know, even, you know, the kind of items that are sold in houseware stores. Um, so, you know, so what are like, what are some little things that can really make a huge difference in, in a school kitchen? Sure. I mean, those the little things are the, you know, many times the most important things. You know, there are lots of different types of cutting boards available out there, but you can purchase a cutting board that has little rubber edges, and that is going to instantly secure that board to your work table. You don't have to think about, oh, I need to go get a dampened terry cloth towel or some type of, um, you know, shelf liner rubberized mat to hold this cutting board in place. It's Mm -hmm. going to automatically come with that. You only have to think about having it, you know, washed, rinsed, and sanitized. Mm -hmm. Does it cost a little bit more? Yes, it does. But think of what you are providing for your your staff. Mm-hmm. An easy way to do to manage your cutting board. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, big, big. This needs to be on the show. Knife sharpener. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I jokingly tell people in presentations. You know, prisons have sharper knives than we do in school nutrition because we buy the knife, yet we don't buy any type of piece of equipment to sharpen it. I mean, I've seen. Uh, employees go outside on and on the brick wall they've used that brick to try to sharpen the knife oh my goodness yes yes true story yeah um sunkissed sectionizers or some other brand of fruit sectionizer so that you can cut apples and pears and oranges into wedges you know our students want ready to eat foods mm-hmm. they don't want to be bothered with the core mm-hmm. 
Um, oh, the, the blades are sold separately, so be sure to buy those every couple of years. I, I know the unit will last a long time, but the blades do need to be replaced. And, and you're very specific about, you know, like because the machine or the sectionizer comes with some blades and others you have to buy extra. And you said buy one, get it with this kind and not the other kind because the it'll cost you more to buy the other kind. I mean, you, you really like sort of have it down, right? Well, you know, I've been around 25 years, and yeah. sometimes, you know, the new things that come out, you, you, those of us who are the historians of, of the uh, programs, you know, would say, oh, no, let me tell you how to do it this way. Right. And then and then you have something called a, a, a manual dicer for onions and peppers, which I actually have never seen before. Yeah, so it's a very inexpensive item. It's a little manual dicer, and you mm-hmm. put your onions and peppers through. You can also do tomatoes, uh, but, you know, it's a, the tomatoes. You need to be sure you're wearing an apron. It's a little bit messy, but it sure. does work for that as well. Um, yeah, vegetable brushes. You can't believe what I've seen out there that people say, oh, yeah, this is my vegetable brush. You know, it's, so what, it, what, are the, what are they using? <laughs> I've seen um, the little metal scrubbies. Oh, Little toothbrush types, you know, <laughs> vegetable. They call it. A, it looks like a tooth, giant toothbrush. But yeah. It, again, it's just little types of brushes that they have purchased, not the commercial large vegetable brush. So get the right uh, thing, and again, it just it costs so little. Um, little. Right. Right. And then and then you um you had this anecdote about you know timers and the importance of like carrying a timer around with you. Um, to avoid things burning. Can you tell us what, what that's about? Yeah, so I love little personal timers. So here you are, you're working, so you've purchased, you know, a very expensive combi oven for your kitchen, okay, and it has a timer on it. But you're doing so many other tasks. You know, you've got to get your cash box ready. You're the cashier. So if you'll take that little timer with you when it goes off, then you'll know to come back to check your product. Because sometimes people will, you know, they're working with you in the kitchen. They'll hear the timer go off. They think they're doing you a favor by opening the door, just leaving it cracked. Mm-hmm. But then you get back and, oh, my gosh, your product's not ready to go. Or they turn the timer off and the product continues to cook and it gets burned. So use that personal timer to manage yourself. Yeah. So what can you get one that you hang around your neck or something? You know, it's a, that's a thought. I don't know if that would be too safe, though. Uh, but I no, guess, just, yeah. Um, you can put them in your apron pocket or just yeah. put it in your, your next workstation with you. Right, right. I, I think I might even try that at home because I'm upstairs in my office and downstairs something's burning. So it's it's that, that's it not just an well, institutional kitchen trick. Yeah, yeah. So, Cindy, you, you have expressed concern about the brain drain that's occurring as older workers retire and less skilled new staff take their place. You know, what, what's going on? Well, we're we're aging. You know, the profession, uh, the average age right now is 55. Um, you go into schools and they'll have calendars up with the X's saying, you know, so many more days and I'm 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 gone. Mm-hmm. And so with that goes the you know the knowledge of how we do things. And the next generation, if we don't write this down, take pictures of it, you know, we're going to lose. Um, we're going to lose the ability to produce these foods in a mm-hmm. timely manner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you had some interesting examples of, of super young people coming into the kitchen for the first time and, you know, things that just they absolutely didn't know, which really illustrates how far they have to go and how much they have to learn from the older workers. 
can you give us a couple examples? Yeah, so, you know, not too long ago, I was working with some college students, and they, a young man came out of the walk-in refrigerator, and he was exasperated and said, where, the, where are the egg yolks? I cannot find a container. And he was very serious. He did not realize that the egg yolk was inside the shell eggs. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> a college professor friend of mine uh, in, over in North Carolina, she shared with me a few years ago, she had a group of dietetic students, and they were preparing, I think it was a quick breads class. And so as she comes by the group, she says, you know, what are you guys doing? And they were literally greasing the bottom of the pan, in other words, the underside of the pan, because the recipe said grease the bottom of the oh, pan. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so they do have far to go. So, so like, what are what specific things can be done to ensure this transfer of knowledge? You talked about like notating stuff. There's taking pictures. Do you know? Do people write on the recipes? Like, you know, as as consultant, what what are some of the steps you suggest that districts make to, you know, hold on to this institutional knowledge? Well, we need. Pardon me. We need to do a better job of creating recipes with detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, for every single thing, even if you were buying it pre-made from the manufacturer, it needs to have how that item is going to be prepared, what it's going to be served in, what's the portioning tool. It needs to have the number of servings that you are going to be able to get out of each pan. Really detailed recipes. And, and honestly, this is something that is we are a work in progress. And I'm uh, I was really excited about the new um, nutritional requirements because it did cause us all mm-hmm. to turn around and really focus on the recipe. And I, I've seen some great improvements. Yeah, and, and we've on this show reported on some um, recipe collections that are being created you know, by school cooks for school cooks. And we will continue to do that. So it, you're right. It's, it's a movement and it's really exciting. And I am surprised to hear it hasn't been done before. Um, so, so, Cindy, given that you're all about fixing things in school food, um, I have a final question. If, if you could only fix one more thing across the nation, what would you choose to fix? That is an easy question to answer. I would increase the amount of time that students have to dine with us. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I would I teasingly tell people, you know, when I retire, I'm going to Washington, D.C. with a little sign marching up and down 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue just saying, we need more time for lunch. We need more time for lunch. Yeah. Because it really does make a difference. I mean, some of these students only get five to eight minutes by the time they sit down. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you say that uh, there was a district that was in Atlanta that gave kids more time? Yes, I was fortunate. In um, my district in Atlanta, all of my high schools, they were on block scheduling, and therefore we had 50 minutes to serve lunch. That's 5.050. Wow. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so the kids was, got to, they got to eat everything. Yeah, that, that's great. Well, you know, Cindy, you're you're not the first person to talk about um, more time for school and inside school food. Um, you know, most notably, FNS administrator Audrey Rowe brought this up when she appeared on this show last January. She talked about the need for what she called chew time. So you're in very good company there. Oh, she did. Well, that's uh, yay because I yay I Audrey. That as well. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, So I think we need to end here. Um, It's been great, Cindy. Um, We have been listening to Inside School Food, a visit with Chef Cindy's story, or should I say Dr. Chef Cindy's story. Uh, Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. Um, listeners, you can find a link to Cindy's website, and I will look for that Kiwi um, video also, and I'll put that on today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com. Today's episode is also available on the site of our host station, uh, HeritageRadioNetwork.org, which specializes in all things to do with good food and the good food movement. You can also subscribe to Inside School Food via iTunes or Stitcher. And remember, if you are a regular listener, please let us know by subscribing to the Inside School Food Twitter feed, uh, the Facebook page, or the newsletter. That is how we know who is listening, which is very, very important to the future of this show. I'm Laura Stanley, and I look forward to welcoming you back next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.